1: welcome. I think these days, because the reality in front of our nose is often so unpleasant or unsettling or unpredictable, um, I think these days we're kind of more drawn occasionally, particularly those of us who put together this show, drawn towards stories about something else. (laughs) Some, some some other group of people who've been facing other realities or who in the past faced other realities. And it's led us, uh, as many shows as we might do about um, modern politics, we seem to be doing almost an equal number of shows about almost anything else, uh, when the almost anything else uh, involves our ability to dream and see other horizons. So what could be better when you look at it that way than doing a show about adventurers and explorers, about the people who in the past have had uh, um, an undiscovered country uh, to go find, uh, to go seek, uh, and have had enormous physical challenges to face in in order to get there. Um, And I think it's also fair to ask whether or not um, those kinds of opportunities exist anywhere right now, except maybe on the way to Mars. Um, So a little bit later in the show, Uh, It's a very New Yorker friendly show uh, today. Um, We'll be talking to Catherine Schultz a a little bit later from The New Yorker about um, Arctic explorers, particularly sort of, yeah, in that little stretch of time from 1875 to, say, 1925, um, and the way their uh, attempts to reach uh, the polar cap had transfixed their societies. We'll also be talking to Hugh Thompson, a writer, filmmaker, and author of many books, including The White Rock, An Exploration of the Inca Heartland, uh, and A Sacred Landscape, The Search for Ancient Peru. Geographical Magazine has described him as a writer who explores and not an explorer who writes. But right now we're talking to David Grant. You uh, may very well know one of his books, The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. And most recently, also the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. He's an award-winning staff writer for The New Yorker. If you recognize that first title, you may also recognize it because it was recently released as a feature film. So, David Grant, welcome to this conversation. Thank you for having me on the program. So, one of my working hypotheses is that, that our interest in frontiers and exploration gets more feverish as those things begin to shrink before our eyes. So heading into 1925, you know, you really have gotten— uh, industrialization in full swing. Um, people themselves aren't living on pr- in pristine countrysides as much anymore. They're gravitating more and more in, in England and the rest of Europe uh, towards cities and, and centers of industrialization. And it seems as though that's sort of the time when explorers, including the explorer who attracted your interest, they kind of turned into even bigger
0: rock stars, Right. Well, that's certainly true. Um, I wrote about uh, Percy Harrison Fawcett, who was kind of the last of these terrestrial explorers who would venture into these blank spots on the map with little more than a compass and an almost divine sense of purpose. And he uh, explored uh, the Amazon area of uh, South America uh, during the first part of the 20th century. And by then, much of the world had already been mapped, but the Amazon really remained the last kind of, at least to outsiders, unknown area, this vast jungle that was about the size of the continental United States.
1: And there was a notion at that time, it's a notion that has persisted, although it, it it's, it's teetering, I think, these days, that, uh, well, actually, let's talk about two contrasting notions. One notion is this legend of El Dorado, this notion that there was somewhere in that vast Amazon jungle, this city that just oozed gold and riches. And then there was this other notion that this was such an inhospitable environment, that cities are impossible. The ability to centralize human activity enough to have anything that could even vaguely remember resemble a city just wasn't there. Maybe you can talk, talk a little bit about how, how those questions were juggled in 1925.
0: Yeah, so early on, um, the Spanish conquistadors, after uh, finding the Incan ruins with all its gold, heard about that there may be this golden kingdom in the Amazon, which they referred to as El Dorado because it was so plentiful in gold, it was said the king essentially kind of anointed himself with gold and gleamed. Um, And then they plunged over the mountains, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them in search of El Dorado, only really to meet kind of horrific ends, dying of disease and hunger. By the 20th century, most people believed that El Dorado was no more than a delusion or an illusion. And modern archaeologists had come to believe that the Amazon was what they referred to as a counterfeit paradise, a place that, despite its flora and fauna, uh, was really inimical to human life, and that the Amazon really could not support a large population in a complex society. But Fawcett believed that was not true. And in recent years, many archaeologists have discovered ruins, disproving this notion that the Amazon was a counterfeit paradise.
1: When you think about what you know about the development of cities and civilizations everywhere else in the world, it kind of never made any sense, right? There are cities in all kinds of very hot and difficult places.
0: Yeah, though, that's true. I mean, I think kind of two things happened. I mean, one, uh, the modern theories were definitely colored by prejudice, this idea that somehow the indigenous communities were not capable of producing complex societies. And what also happened is that um, when explorers and archaeologists and uh, went into the Amazon, they didn't see initially these ruins, and they saw only kind of small indigenous groups, kind of hunter-gatherers, and they assumed that was the way the Amazon had always been. But what really it turned out to be is more ruins have now been discovered, is what they were really seeing uh, was the remnants of a kind of a holocaust from disease. Mm. And so that, ironically the and tragically, the, uh, the El Dorado hunters, in search of their great kingdom, ended up bringing in diseases into the Amazon that ended up wiping out many populations. And ruins have now been found in many parts of the Amazon, and often they're dated up to about 1500 or 1600 AD. Well, that was right around the time when the conquistadors came in.
1: Now, in fact, in 1925, when Bossett is beholding the history of this place, I mean there's just this gigantic keep out sign standing there saying you're know, you going to die here, you come here, you're going to die that's what happens, you show up, you die Uh, there were expeditions that lost 4,000 people, so what kind of mindset does Fawcett get himself into? I mean he brings his son, uh, his beloved son into this horrific and difficult place. Well it
0: it really was an extremely dangerous place, especially to outsiders at that time for a number of reasons. Often we think of larger predators in the Amazon, but really the most dangerous force for Europeans coming in was the little invisible pests that they could barely see, the mosquitoes, which transported all sorts of diseases from yellow fever to malaria. And Fawcett had done many expeditions during the first part of the 20th century and often uh, would lose about half of their parties dying from disease and hunger. And so it did take a certain maniacal quality uh, and Fawcett certainly had that an almost obsessive maniacal quality that almost grew over time. Because Fawcett had gone on these expeditions earlier on and would take about a dozen members in and often half of them would die he would describe burying them along the banks of the river but he always emerged and he began to have almost a sense of indestructibility about himself and others had that sense about him too and he was indeed willing to bring his oldest son with him on his final expedition in 1925 when he set out to look for this ancient civilization which he called the city of z and they of course uh, disappeared
1: So one of the truisms uh, would be something along the lines of, you know, when you go to this wild and untamed and virgin place, you bring yourself with you. So what was Fawcett bringing with him? I mean, obviously, there's there's the lure of El Dorado. There's uh, the the lure of maybe seeing something that nobody's ever seen before. But he's bringing his own personal demons or family issues in there with him, too. How how much of that was driving him? And, And describe what those things were.
0: I think of almost two Fawcett's and they were almost separated by a specific date. And that was Fawcett went to fight in World War I at the Battle of the Somme. And he witnessed tens of thousands of young boys uh, climbing out of their trenches, marching to their death in machine guns. He witnessed, in many ways, the collapse of Western civilization. And Z at that point, became something almost mystical for him, something larger in his mind, a place of flight, an escape. And so those demons and those kind of internal struggles of the world in which he came fueled him. And I would say that even earlier on, and this was true of many of the Victorian and Edwardian explorers, uh, they were often people who sought respectability within their societies but were also fleeing its strictures.
1: So, David Grant, now we have to talk about you because you went into this, I don't want to say godforsaken jungle uh, because, first of all, it's a different place than it was to a certain degree anyway, a different place than it was for Fawcett. Also, that's a very kind of Western overlay on what the Amazon actually is. But it's still not a place that's easy to be in, not a place that's as safe probably as the Upper East Side of New York City. So what were you doing down there?
0: Well, um, so when I began researching the story of Fawcett, I plan to do it in a way uh, suitable for my poultry physical attributes, which was in the archives of libraries. I'm very good in archives. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would just tell his story um, through records. But at a certain point, I was doing research, I tracked down Fawcett's granddaughter and she had led me into this back room in her house. Um And she had this old chest, and she opened up the chest, and inside were these diaries. There were these old books kind of held together by um, ribbons. Uh, they were covered in dust. And I asked her what they were, and she said they were her grandfather's secret diaries and log books. And she let me go through them. And these books held enormous clues, both to Fawcett's life, but also to his death. They contained information about his route and where he had intended to go. And I decided at that point to do something very foolish, which is to try to follow in his footsteps to see if I could learn more about what happened to him and learn more about the possibility that the jungle might really contain a place like the city of Z. One of the things I do try to point out in the story is that these quests can also have real life consequences. In the case of Fawcett, he and his son uh, disappeared, uh, leaving behind and kind of ravaging a family uh, for decades without answers to what had happened to them.
1: So. You know, in some ways, there's still things on this planet that we don't quite understand. But I sort of wonder how you feel about the mind of a contemporary explorer. As daunting as the Amazon is, it, it, it kind of has been explored anyway. So where does an explorer go these days? Would, where would, what would Fawcett do these days? Would he want to go to Mars? <laughs> would, would he, or, or would it be maybe a different kind of journey? Maybe more, he had an interest in spirituality. Would it be more of an inward journey?
0: you know i think many quests have an inward quality to them and and certainly the kind of a lot of the terrestrial exploring that that period is largely over although certainly parts of the sea are are still unmapped and unknown and of course there is outer space but there are still great realms of discovery um i wrote about a man named michael heckenberger an Mm -hmm. archaeologist who's been doing research for years in the very area where Fawcett believed z would exist And I actually visited the Kwikwuro Indians where he was staying. And when I was there, when I met Michael there, he took his machete and he led me into the forest. And he put a machete down into the ground where there was a look like a ditch. And I said, what is that? Uh, He said, it's a moat. And I said, what's our moat doing in the middle of the jungle? And he said, you're actually standing on a pre-Columbian settlement. He and his team have found uh, 20 pre-Columbian settlements, the date, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, around 800 AD to about 1600 AD. These were connected by causeways, often built at right angles. There were bridges, there were moats. He compared them in complexity to medieval cities. So I, I see him in many ways as a modern day discoverer, and I think there is still this realm of great discovery. And what they're really trying to discover now is not whether these cities existed, but what they were like, and who these people were, and how they lived, and that's a great mystery that I think that will certainly consume them for another century.
1: And my recollection of the the kinds of settlements that he's discovered too is that they they demonstrate also a certain amount of astronomical sophistication, in, just in the way that they're laid out relative yes. to yeah. You, know, you go ahead, you can tell. The yeah, story no, around. laid out
0: like with cardinal points, east and west. They're very beautiful. They involve kind of these. Often they're massive earthworks, and they're very architecturally complex. Now, what they are not is made of stone. There is not a lot of stone in the Amazon, and that's one of the reasons the forests often reconsumed them and ate them up, and why it was, uh, at least for many years, hard to find them.
1: Right. I don't mean to romanticize that kind of thing too much, but it does seem more like an act of recognizing the environment you're in and trying to live harmoniously and sensibly and knowledgeably in that environment as opposed to domination and, and subsequent stewards, transformation and stewardship of an environment. I mean, I, I think we think of that as being kind of the quintessential European model. Why is Trier the oldest city in Germany? Well, partly because the Romans basically took over that territory and Romanized it, right? I mean, that that's the transformation of the landscape. These Amazon settlements seem more like a way to live within an existing natural reality.
0: What I would say is that at least in the area where I was doing my exploring where you the descendants of these settlements now live, it is in this area where the jungle that is still under their control remains and has not been destroyed. And it doesn't mean, I mean there was a myth for many years that this the forest was just kind of a pristine jungle untouched by human hands, and that was certainly not true. The Amazonians who lived in these areas sculpted the landscape to suit their needs. But there was, at least I can speak for this area where I was, a real preservation of the jungle uh, and the forests uh, and the habitat within which they lived.
1: David Grant, so much more to learn from all this and about all this stuff. Your book is a fabulous place to start. It's The Lost City of Z, a tale of deadly obsession in the Amazon that's been turned into a film of the same name, The Lost City of Z*. Also, most recently, uh, the author of The Killing of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murder and the Birth of the FBI, An award-winning staff writer for The New Yorker. Coming up, we're going to have more conversations uh, with and about uh, explorers. But David Grant, thanks for being with us
0: today. Thanks so much.
2: This is my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless, no matter how far to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a hell.
1: We're back. We're still talking about explorers and exploration. We're going to move to a different part of the South American continent uh, and perhaps a slightly different view of exploring. Uh, Joining us right now is Hugh Thompson, writer, filmmaker, and author of many books, including The White Rock, an exploration of the Inca heartland, and A Sacred Landscape, The Search for Ancient Peru. Hugh Thompson is both a writer and explorer. So let's begin there. I I think for an awful lot of people, there's a notion that exploring would have to take place on a trip to Mars, that everything uh, that there is on Earth is digitally mapped and fully understood. So disabuse them of that notion, if you will.
2: Well, I can understand why people feel that. But of course, it's a salient reminder that in the 16th century, people felt exactly the same way. (laughs) You know, I mean, mankind has always felt that he already knew it all. Mm. And uh, there were always a few surprises to disabuse him of that notion. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous complacency for us to feel that we have explored the planet. And even if we have, I think it's very good to revisit old places with new questions, so to speak. And also, although we have to a certain extent Google mapped everything, I mean, there are very large areas, and particularly in the area where I do a lot of my work on the eastern side of the Andes near Machu Picchu. There's an awful lot of places where we've got some reference points, we've got some major centers, but there's a lot of spaces in between we haven't really looked at. And in that particular part of the world, for instance, there's an awful lot of cloud forest covering it. So I'm sure we will find more, both in the next few years and, and generations
1: to come. One of the people that you quote uh, is the Amazonian historian John Hemings, who says to you mm-hmm. essentially it's one thing to find something, uh, it's another thing to understand it. It might be a relatively, at least comparatively fast thing to locate something, lay your feet and hands upon it, uh, another to understand it. Is that where a lot of the mystery lies, uh, knowing what a site actually means?
2: Well, I mean, John Hemming told me that when I was a young man, and at the time I was rather impatient with the idea that the hard work was understanding it, not getting out and finding it. But I think he's he's absolutely right. There's a very interesting old explorer's maxim, which I always like, which is, you only ever find what you're looking for. (laughs) And that sort of is that if you come across something and you're not expecting it, it's very difficult for the mind to process. I mean, there's a great story about how, the American explorer Hiram Bingham, when he first came across Machu Picchu, absolutely could not process what he was seeing. He wasn't expecting to find a ruin in that location. He was a historian. It didn't make any sense to him. So his initial reaction was disbelief, and he just walked away. He didn't spend time there. It was only much later that he came to realize he must have discovered something of significance. So, so I think you need to be mentally prepared as an explorer And you also probably need to put in as much time in the library before you go as on the ground.
1: Um, I want to circle back to Bingham because he's a, such an interesting figure and because I'm sitting here in Connecticut where he is uh, from. He was actually, at one point, I believe, governor-elect and senator-elect at the same time when Connecticut served as governor for one day and then went yeah. to the U.S. Senate. So he's a, of even more interest to us. We want to explore Hiram Bingham. But I, I, we want to talk about you first. You actually did discover the remains of part of a civilization. Tell, tell us what it is that you did find there in the Eastern Andes.
2: Well, we went looking for a site that there had already been several reports of, including from Haram Bingham, of a site that's within sight of Machu Picchu, so relatively close to Machu Picchu, which is, you know, the great, the great archaeological pinup of South America. So you'd be surprised to think there's something that's still to be found nearby. But there was, because the cloud forest is so dense that it had really hidden the full extent of the site we were interested in. And we went with a very good team, of archaeologists, and also we had an archaeoastronomist who was particularly good at deciphering the significance of what we found because, effectively, we found a small sun temple which is modelled on the main sun temple in the Inca capital of Cusco. And we know that they dotted these smaller sun temples all around the empire. So it matched the chronicles, and I was helped to find it by some notes that Haram Bingham had left in one of his journals, uh, which I went to Yale to, to have a look at. So it's a good example of how we wouldn't have found it without looking in a library, and we wouldn't have understood what it meant without having someone with us who'd spent a great deal of time in a library, and it all came together. I and mean, it was also a very satisfying moment. I mean, the, the shock of uncovering buildings that perhaps haven't been seen for 500 years and revealing them again was terrific and also quite elegiac, of course, because there is this sadness with the Inca civilization. You feel here was a an amazing culture that was snuffed out at its zenith in just a, a few years by the European invasion.
1: Well, the one thing that I had not entirely grasped is that, that the Incan Empire spanned, I, 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 at the time that we could call it an empire, I guess, about 140 years, I mean, it, its own rise and fall were uh, relatively steep curves.
2: Absolutely. No, I mean, it, it was only really just getting going. It was still entering its expansionist imperial phase. So it was snuffed out very early on the curve, so to speak, compared to many earlier Andean and Peruvian civilizations, because we're talking about civilizations going right back to 3000 BC in that part of the world, it's taken a great deal of time to realize how significant the earlier civilizations were, because the Incas rather liked to pretend to the Spanish that everything they saw was (laughs) being created by them, (laughs) Um, and it was only about 100 years ago that archaeologists really began to realize the extent of the earlier civilizations.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about what it's like, what a day in the life of an explorer is like, when you're on foot, when you are actually uh, trying to gain your goal. I think, you know, we, we see movies where everything is kind of compressed and fast. I'm guessing exploring involves a certain amount of tedium.
2: The real problem about exploration is that, yes, there's going to be a great deal of, of boredom. I mean, the Amazon can seem very suburban. If you're floating down long stretches of it, you're very unlikely to see an animal, which is why, you know, I personally have such a problem with, with someone like Percy Fawcett and his his descriptions. I mean, he's, Fawcett, you know, was writing for a particular audience, so he was trying to... Impress them with his tales of enormous snakes and ferocious indians he knew that it wouldn't play so to speak if he if he just described long days of getting bitten by mosquitoes and not much happening my interest is, has always been in demythologizing to a certain extent exploration and showing what it's what it's really like and what the real goals are whether they're whether they're the intellectual
1: exploration
2: that needs, needs to happen or the difference between what you expect to find and what you actually find, which I, again, find very, very interesting.
1: I would imagine it's also very exhausting. My, my sense is that when you actually even arrived at this site that you had been looking for, you almost needed a good night's sleep uh, to be, even be able to um, appreciate where you were.
2: Absolutely. I mean, just as when, as when Hiram Bingham first found Machu Picchu, you know, it's, it's not immediately obvious. You need to work it through in your head. I did as well go back later, uh, go back to the site. And, and of course, you're seeing it still covered in a lot of shrub. You can't clear sites quickly. So the shape of a site can take quite a long time to emerge.
1: Who are the Incas to you? How do you understand the Incas? There's so much un- still unknown about the Incas.
2: Well, the real thing with the Incas and all the preceding Peruvian civilizations is that they left no writing. They <laughs> had no form of writing alone of all the, the big ancient civilizations of the time. So, so everything we know about them has been pieced together from Spanish chroniclers who obviously come with their own agenda and to a certain extent for, from archaeology. So it's been a much slower learning curve than with other cultures, who obviously left records about themselves or more records about themselves. The thing that always intrigues me is that I suspect the Incas were much more like us than we would like them to have been. I mean, we would like to position them as having had a very sort of spiritual take on life and a very different take on life, but in fact, like many an expansionistic military empire. They were very secular in lots of ways and were quite capable of mistreating their subjects, which they did. And indeed, if if they hadn't mistreated their subjects, those subjects wouldn't have helped the Spaniards when they arrived to overthrow that empire. So it's a more complex story than, you know, the comic books would sort of like to suggest.
1: So Hugh Thompson, you know, we just got through talking to David Gran. Uh, you at one point wrote about the movie version, not so much his book, but the movie version of the Lost City of Z. Uh, one of the things that you pointed out was that if you wanted to to relish in the exploits of a, a heroic explorer in South America, you might do better with a Hiram Bingham than with Percy Fawcett. You know, you've already mentioned the idea that Fawcett kind of mythologized the day to day life heading down the Amazon, uh, shooting enormous anacondas. Uh, uh, with his his marksmanship prowess. Just in general, what's your level of discomfort with that whole story?
2: Well, he was clearly a racist. We know that from his writings and other historians have described him as that. And he suggested that if there was a civilization in the Amazon, it could only have got there because uh, it had been brought there from Europe. He couldn't sort of take on board the idea that it might have been a, a genuine pre-Columbian civilization in its own right. So he was a deeply conflicted and problematic figure, and the film presented him as a sort of blue-eyed Hollywood hero. So whereas David Grant's book was much more nuanced, I think the film made the great mistake of taking it all far too seriously.
1: If Bingham's an improvement, he's complicated nonetheless, uh, maybe a, a product of his particular historical moment. But obviously, Yale and Peru then wound up in a pretty long, complicated dance uh, about who owns some of the stuff that came back here from Peru. What's your take on all that?
2: I admire Haram Bingham hugely. I think he's a great American hero and should be valued far more than he is, actually, Mm -hmm. in the States. He's the man they should be making the movie about, so to speak. So he's an impressive, if deeply complicated figure. He goes on the Pershing expedition, chases down into Mexico, is involved in the First World War in France with the Air Force. But then his political life is overshadowed by uh, scandal. Mm -hmm. He's censored by the Senate, and his personal life is very complicated. He marries a Tiffany heiress and has seven sons, but that all ends in quite a messy divorce. So it's, it's not a straightforward story. But I think the, the end conclusion has got to be that, that Haram Bingham was a superb and very impressive explorer.
1: Although that whole artifact problem, I, maybe it even drifts into a question of terminology, too. I think it's very natural in the course of conversation, whether we're talking about Hiram Bingham or Hugh Thompson, to use the word discovered. And of course, discovered is a very conditional term in these situations. There certainly were Incan people who knew exactly where all these things were. <laughs> they didn't require any discovering. Abs-
2: no, absolutely. And I think they have a very nice phrase for that at Machu Picchu, where they now, rightly, describe Hiram Bingham as the scientific discoverer of wounds, which were being lived in when he found them by a local community and, of course, were known were known locally. But I think that's fair, and I think that's a good distinction. And I think the complications with the artefacts, most of which sort of developed actually after Bingham's death, so I don't think he was necessarily responsible for them. I mean, Bingham had a contract with the Peruvian government to take back artefacts from Machu Picchu for a period of scientific research, quote-unquote, Back in Yale, the problem was that no one ever specified how long that period of scientific research should be, and so it's very natural and understandable, and I supported it that the Peruvian government should, after a while, go, "Hey guys, you know, I know archaeologists work slowly, but you've you've had these artifacts for getting on for 100 years, isn't it about time we had them back?" And they have now been turned. The sort of things that Bingham found weren't the great treasures that everyone. Supposed they were you know, bits of pottery shard and, and some of the skeletons, so of huge emotional importance, but not of enormous archaeological importance.
1: Um, you know, as you're talking, uh, one final question uh, occurs to me, Hugh Thompson, which is that as you're talking, I'm realizing that, yes, Hiram Bingham here in Connecticut, where I mean he really should be a legend, is not particularly famous. If I went around and asked 20 people on the street who he was, I would draw blanks probably with all 20 of them. And I compare that to the way that explorers and adventurers were thought of, particularly in the British population between, say, about 1875 and 1925. Where not just the faucets, but the Arctic explorers. They were rock stars. I mean, people really knew who they were. People fed on stories of their explorations and adventures. I don't, Do you have any thoughts about sort of what's changed? And also, was there a specific British appetite for that kind of story at that particular moment that made the interest so feverish at the time?
2: Yes, I do think there was a huge public appetite for... Exploits of exploration, which, which was very much fed by a lot of the, the literary stories that were around. People like Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World, also writer Haggard, great stories of boy's own stuff, which fueled that particular flame. I mean, some of it was also allied to imperial ambition, and that connection was sometimes explicitly, explicitly made that this went hand in hand with running an empire. I mean it's something that I think also happens in America to a certain extent and uh in the states and the the race to get to the north pole and indeed Hiram Bingham trying to describe his discoveries at Machu Picchu and the way in which National Geographic promoted him as a great American hero at the time for for having done so yes it was a more sort of heroic age of exploration and I would argue that there is still a great deal of exploration that still continues It's often done in a quieter way. Some of it is more scientific and probably all the better for that. There are still people going out into the furthest edges of the world and making some very surprising and intriguing discoveries. Of course, we have new tools to do that with. We have LiDAR. We have thermal imaging. We have all sorts of ways of exploring places that uh, couldn't be done 100 years ago.
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much, Hugh Thompson, writer, filmmaker, author of many books, including The White Rock, An Exploration of the Inca Heartland, and A Sacred Landscape, The Search for Ancient Peru. Uh, Conan Doyle keeps coming up in our final segment. We'll also be talking about Conan Doyle and his fascination with the Arctic explorers, the fact that he even wound up as a ship's doctor on one whaling ship headed north towards the pole. So our exploration of explorers continues. Uh, Hugh Thompson, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much.
3: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, I presume, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish became a piranha for a day. The part of Bill Curry was played by Harrison Ford. And now, back to Colin.
1: We're talking to Katherine Schultz, staff writer for The New Yorker. In 2016, she won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing and a National Magazine Award for the really big one, her story on seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. She's the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. We're talking to her today because of a piece that she wrote recently called Literature's Arctic Obsession. And it's uh, very much a history of how the Arctic was conceived previously, in particularly in the adventure writing of the 19th century, and maybe how that may be uh, echoed almost in reverse today. So first of all, Catherine Schultz, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. So there are all kinds of things in this piece that I was completely fascinated to know. And one of them... I, if I, if I processed it correctly, it's kind of astonishing, which is that in the middle part of the 19th century, not only did explorers not really know what they would find if they could really get all the way to the, to the north part of the Arctic, but they had completely the opposite idea of what they would find there. They thought they were going to find some warm, paradisical El Dorado?
3: Yes, you're right on both counts. The Arctic went unknown and largely undiscovered for an incredibly long time. Obviously, there were native peoples living there, um but for the most part, although they were very nomadic and moved around and uh, obviously understood their homeland incredibly well, they were following sources of food, as one would, and not uh, motivated by these strange abstract goals like, let's get to the pole, you know, whatever that kind of mythical concept was. So the native people had bigger fish to fry, so to speak, than this quixotic quest for this geographical fantasy. And the uh Europeans who were trying to, to reach the pole, had very little experience in the region. It was extraordinarily difficult to get to for a great many reasons. And the the whole region, especially obviously the farther north you got, was essentially unmapped. And what that meant is that people could, of course, project all kinds of interesting fantasies onto what might be there. The, The strangest of all of these fantasies was this notion that instead of the climate just getting colder and colder and colder, you would cross this mysterious mythical meridian and suddenly it would get warmer and warmer and warmer. Some people thought, well, there'll just be a nice balmy open polar sea and we can sail there easily and it will be really great for navigation and trade routes. And then some people had these much more elaborate fantasies that really did tend in the direction of a tropical paradise, sometimes replete with an undiscovered tropical civilization
1: living there. So there were the things that the explorers were doing and then there were the things that writers were imagining and thinking about. And sometimes those things overlap. You begin your essay with Arthur Conan Doyle, who basically did both. I mean, he kind of went up there as part of a bit of happenstance, but also wrote nonfiction and fiction about that. But let's just stay with nonfiction for a second and just talk about the cautionary aspects of that. I mean, some of these expeditions went terribly, terribly awry. The one that you sketch out in the most vivid and upsetting detail, I think, would be the so-called Franklin Expedition. Just give people a sense of of that one.
3: Sure. John Franklin was an extraordinarily respected explorer. He'd been very famous in his youth for a couple of attempts, unsuccessful, to try to find the Northwest Passage. And then in his, uh, what at the time would have been old age, the age of 59, in 1845, he headed off on his fourth polar expedition with quite a lot of hoopla because he was really well known. And they decked out their two ships with, you know, really elaborate silver sets in China. And they were sent out with tremendous fanfare and never heard from them again. It took about a dozen years for England to actually find out what had happened, which was, in short, the ships had become trapped in pack ice, broken up, all the crew left and tried to make an overland passage, and Franklin himself actually perished on the ships. The others kind of died gradually of, you know, scurvy and starvation and hypothermia and all the things one dies of in the Arctic. But on the one hand, it was an exceptional expedition because it really captured the English imagination to an unusual degree and massive debates raged about what had really happened to Franklin and his men. On the other hand, it was a somewhat characteristic expedition in that all of these expeditions were incredibly dangerous. And so, in that sense, although the scale of the death uh, was was a little exceptional, the, the trip in some ways was quite representative.
1: But I think these trips ask the question or maybe cling to the notion of who we are. We, in this case, probably being, you know, Britannia. Uh, and so, yes, the first of all, there was a tremendous—I think you're alluding to—you're too polite on public radio to, to <laughs> oh, come no, right I'll out and there. say it. <laughs> With the contrary. He was he was somebody else went up there and found the remains, some of the remains of this expedition and looked in the cookpots and said, well, it looks like, you know, when they ran out of food, they just started eating eating each other. And that's just something that the British don't do.
3: Yeah, what was really at stake here was not what happened at this expedition per se, but what does it mean to be British? And what was so upsetting to the American public is the very respected Scottish explorer goes up, comes back, as you say, with evidence that The last of the survivors of the Franklin Expedition prolonged their lives a little bit by eating their more unfortunate comrades who had already perished. Mm. And for England, which by this point had spent many, many decades and a whole lot of energy and ink decrying savages in the world that they were busy colonizing and imputing to them in many cases the kind of cardinal sin of cannibalism— The notion that a British person and a British explorer, someone elevated to this level of almost kind of godlike heroism and superiority, would engage in this ghastly behavior was absolutely unthinkable. And Charles Dickens, who I regret to report, was very much on the wrong side of this debate. He uh, made the ill-advised decision to take on the, the actual explorer who had gone north and brought back this evidence. He was a a highly reputable explorer. Of course, he didn't really have anything except the ability to write really well, and so he wrote a whole lot of words about how egregious and ridiculous this charge of cannibalism was, the problem being that he had really nothing on his side except his outrage.
1: I think this notion of who we are is really interesting in this context, and maybe, I don't know, were they trying to Briticize, Anglicize the Arctic by just going up there? And as you point out, there were Inuits kind of living right where Franklin and his crew couldn't possibly survive. So were they just trying to be like extra English up there?
3: There's no question that in some sense they were trying to domesticate it. And I choose that word with care. They weren't ignorant people. They knew they had colleagues in other countries, including Western nations, places like Norway. They were conducting extraordinarily successful Arctic expeditions by imitating and learning from the Inuit, who, as you said, were surviving and, in fact, thriving and raising little kids in the environment that killed off the Franklin expedition. But I think this was truly that kind of possibility of conquest for people whose fathers and grandfathers had gone out into the world and... Effectively created the British Empire, and they had grown up on the stories of the heroism of these people and this extraordinarily kind of you know British centric and frankly racist model of, of what it meant to be great in the world. And they could have this fantasy that was a a kind of moral blank slate. It was it was imperialism without the need to kind of subjugate the natives because in their fantasy there were no natives, so they could just go there and be British.
1: Right. I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think also the other thing that's happening is okay. So the British are also very obsessed and sentimental about landscape, about their landscape. I wonder if this yearning, this arctic philia, is also about you know, having a place that's maybe more like the place that they could have come from originally. Their own landscape is going, going to go through industrialization. It's going to change a lot in the early 20th century. So as landscape is altering, shrinking, becoming different, I wonder if they're kind of called also to this sense of, well... Here's the place that somehow or other seems more like us than, say, India.
3: The landscape question that you bring up is a really interesting one. In fact, most of the Arctic landscape bears very little resemblance to England or, or Great Britain. But what I do think is true is that, you know, by the time Britain had this kind of serious surge of Arctic interest, the British public had been for for well over a century by what the... Critic Edmund Burke called the sublime, which was this kind of pleasure in nature that was balanced right between grandeur and terror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was the, the drama and beauty of the thunderstorm and the craggy mountain instead of the sweet little pastoral field with sheep in it or whatever. So, so the British had been really obsessed with this notion of the sublime for a while, and they were very primed to kind of fall for a landscape as. Dramatic and bleak and sort of existentially terrifying.
1: So um, the last thing we have to talk about is sort of how imaginative writers tend to run a little bit ahead of contemporary reality. Maybe Mary Shelley is just sort of a great way to talk about how imaginative writers either got ahead of or reacted to this arctophilia.
3: Sure. I mean, Mary Shelley really was uh, right at the, the forefront of what I describe as this little subgenre of Arctic fiction. In 1818, Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein. And what most people forget about Frankenstein, or possibly if, if you never read the original novel, you might have never even known that that novel actually begins and ends in the Arctic in the mind of a ship's captain who's sending letters to his sister back home in England. And he has gone up there because he is in thrall to this idea that if you sail far enough north through all the Arctic ice, you get to this incredible tropical paradise. He's absolutely convinced this is true. One day while he's up there, he sees this very strange thing out on the ice, a man alone on a sledge in the middle of this desolate landscape full of ice. Well, that man, of course, turns out to be Victor Frankenstein, and he's up there because he's pursuing uh, the monster that he's created, who has... Gone up there uh, chiefly to, to lure Frankenstein himself to his death. So that's the setup to the whole novel that, after that, becomes very familiar to all of us. The, the Arctic story is an exact parallel to the main story that we all know it's a story about Hubert. It's a story about being convinced that you and your scientific discoveries are going to be a great gift to the world and enlighten future generations. And of course, what actually happens? Well, the captain never finds his tropical paradise. He gets stuck in pack ice, like everybody else. His men start dying off. It's all this dark and terrible tale, much as Frankenstein, the main body of the text is. Mary Shelley was was a genius in many ways, but. One real example of it, 1818 is the very beginning of this 70, 80, 100-year burst of interest in the Arctic. And she somehow saw it coming, and she sees it for what it is, and she sees that it's motivated Partly by nationalism, partly by humor. She understands the whole thing. And so she builds this kind of framework around Frankenstein to exploit that correctly, thinking that the public at that time (laughs) will respond very potently to it because, of course, they're implicated. They're part of this Arctic Fuhrer. And she basically set the pattern. Uh, You can then kind of go down the line and look at all of these other wonderful contributions to Arctic literature. And for the most part, those writers like Mary Shelley saw in the Arctic the chance to write these kind of cautionary tales about what happens when we decide that we're going to stage and win a battle
1: with nature. Coming to the present, well, first of all, let's sort of posit, I think we can both agree, that we get excited, nostalgically excited for things that we're in the process of losing. So Wild West's <laughs> West shows of the Buffalo Bill type became much more popular when the West became less wild. you know. And we went through a vogue for uh, television shows like Twin Peaks and Picket Fences and Northern Exposure at precisely the time that small town life in America became less idiosyncratic and more dominated by CVSs and Boston Markets and other chain stores that were pretty much identical from town to town. And one of the things that we're doing right now that we've seen over the last 10 years is an incredible vogue for all things Scandinavian. We're turning our eyes Mm -hmm. back north again. You know, it's detective fiction and Icelandic pop. You know, we're sort of in love with all that again. But I'm assuming that's because we're nostalgic for cold, which is something we may be losing quite a bit of.
3: (laughs) I think that. Yes, absolutely. We we become most obsessed with what we are most at risk of losing. And, um, you know, one of the things that was so interesting to me when I first started thinking about this piece was how beautifully and surprisingly the stories that we told about the Arctic in the 19th century we're absolutely right. We're obviously living out the consequences of a couple hundred years of unchecked industrialization. So they were right to foresee that our efforts to tame the entire natural world were going to come back to haunt us. And much more strangely, they were not exactly right, but in some weird sense, prescient to imagine a warm Arctic. And that to me is is mm-hmm. what's so haunting about these stories now, is that we're in danger of just losing cold. you know, something so basic to our lives that it's hard to imagine, and not experiencing like clockwork uh, every season. And yet, when you look at the temperature forecast, the the, the most grim ones are literally prohibitive of, of human life on this planet. If things warm, uh, as much as the worst case scenario suggests that they will. And even in the most moderate scenarios, which are already happening, we know we lose Arctic sea ice in the summer. We eventually most likely will Lose it or lose most of it uh, year round. We will have that strange fantasy of an uh, open polar sea come true. So, yes, I think for sure our attention has turned back to the Arctic because we realize we're losing it.
1: Well, on that happy note, uh, Catherine Schultz, <laughs> uh, no, but it's the right place to end given the conversation that we've had. Uh, staff writer for The New Yorker, a Pulitzer Prize winner, author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for conceiving this show.
3: No.
2: If you will A ship in sail To the Arctic
3: seas Dawn is rising The breeze is still The ocean frozen Underneath Icebergs like diamonds Floating by Reflecting like gemstones In your eyes We're in the land Of the midnight sun Exploring